Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, you have promised to build your church, and I'm grateful for your presence here in our midst. You've also called us to make disciples, and I pray that you would help us understand what that looks like. Teach us, Lord, from your word and the example of your servant, Ananias. Lord, I ask that you'd help me as I preach this morning, and I pray this in your holy name. Amen. So it's kind of an interesting thing um, that gets talked about quite a bit. You know, Billy Graham, I'm assuming all of you know Billy Graham or know of Billy Graham. He's probably has preached the gospel to more people than any other human that has ever lived. He's been in every country just about, and he lived to be 99 years of age, and his legacy continues to go forward. However, the question is sometimes asked, who led Billy Graham to Christ? And not surprisingly, there's kind of a, a Protestant version of apostolic succession where people have sort of traced this back. Um, I, I looked this up, and I, I found this, this track of people who have ministered to other people who've ministered to other people, and it goes something like this. There was a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball. goes back to Sunday school. I don't know what that class looked like, but in that class was Dwight L. Moody, Dwight Moody was converted through conversations with his Sunday school teacher. Dwight Moody became a powerful evangelist, and there was a guy named J. Wilbur Chapman who was converted through conversations with Moody. And then um, there was a person named Billy Sunday who was hired by Chapman and was mentored by Chapman. Billy Sunday developed an organization that was like a men's business kind of a thing that had Christian speakers, and they hired a guy named Dr. Mordecai Ham to come to Charlotte and do a series of big tent preaching events uh, for weeks on end. He preached morning and evening, and it was in one of those meetings that Billy Graham came and heard the gospel, and then he kept coming, and he kept coming, and he kept coming until he finally prayed a prayer to become a Christian, and then obviously you know his legacy. And I like that because it shows how Christ is formed in someone through different relationships. Somebody that knows Christ serves Christ in another person and what God is doing in that person. Now, obviously, there are many interactions, and these are not the only people that influence Billy Graham or each person on that list. There were a lot of different influences going on there. But today, we're looking at the account of the Apostle Paul being converted, and a man named Ananias plays a key role in that. Not the only role, for sure, but a key role right at the beginning. And I would like to suggest to us that it takes a village to make a disciple. We're in a sermon series on discipling generations, and it takes a village to make a disciple. Like the saying, it takes a a village to raise a child. It really does require multiple interactions from Christians to help someone grow in Christ. And I wonder, who will God use in your life? And how? And who will God send you to in someone else's life to minister to them? I had a conversation with somebody this week who reminded me of something that I said to him probably five or so years ago. Um, He was working in student ministry and was having a a good deal of success, not not at our church, um, but he, he had kids that were of that age in that ministry. And as I was trying to encourage him, I asked him this question. I said, when your kids graduate beyond this age, are you just going to drop this ministry? Is it temporary? Are you trying to serve your kids? Or do you have a call? And I I really felt like the Lord led me to say it, and I 
I wasn't trying to judge him in any way. I was just encouraging him to pray about whether or not God would have him keep doing that ministry once his own kids graduated past it. Well, he has. And in a conversation this week, he said, do you know why I'm still doing that? And I said, no. He said, because you, you and I had a conversation and you really challenged me and ministered to me by asking if I was called to the group or if I was just doing it temporarily. And it helped him get clarity. That's a one little example, in this case, how God used something I said to minister to this other person. And there are times when it goes both directions. Because a disciple, if we're talking about discipling generations, a disciple is a student, a learner, and more like an apprentice. So even if you're mature in the faith, you're still always a learner. And we're being discipled and we're growing. Now, I want to make this observation from personal experience, that you can come faithfully to church, even in the best church you can imagine, every single Sunday for many years and not grow. It is possible, I know from firsthand experience, that you can sit in those pews and come every week and not be growing in Christ. The reason is because it requires processing what you're experiencing. I've come to learn this, that an event inspires but a process transforms. And Sunday worship is an event. It's meant to inspire us. It's meant to remind us of the gospel, to fill us and feed us from God's table and send us out inspired to do the work he's given us to do. But it's in processing what we're experiencing with the Lord that it actually begins to really sink in. It's coming alongside another person and having conversations about what is God doing? What, what happened in worship this morning? What, did God say anything to you? What did you feel or not feel and why? It's coming alongside another person and saying, how is it that you pray? I feel like my prayer life is kind of dry or I feel distracted or I have trouble with reading the Bible. How do you do it? Being a learner means learning like that in community. That's why we put together the programs we do at the church is because we want to encourage people to be learning in community and the life groups and the soul in the city. All of this is to set up experiences where it's like a practicum, an apprenticeship, where we're practicing certain things. How are you processing God's work in your life? How are you doing it? Are you doing it alone? I hope not. Now, this morning, we're going to consider Saul, who also... I'll accidentally interchangeably call him Paul or the Apostle or the Apostle Paul. Saul is Paul is the Apostle Paul, same person. But he goes through such a dramatic transformation that sometimes it makes sense to call him Paul, the Apostle, other times to refer to him as Saul. But we're going to look at his experience and his, both his event, one event in his life, and then the processing of it afterwards. It's on page 917 if you want to follow along. This is the famous conversion of Paul when he went from being one person to a totally renewed person in Christ. And in Luke's uh, record of the early church, which is called Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, in this chapter, we have the Holy Spirit setting up a meeting by talking to two different people to arrange for them to meet. He does the same thing in the next chapter with Cornelius, uh, Roman, and uh, Peter. Sets up a meeting, talks to both of them, and then the kingdom breaks in. So in here, God is speaking to Saul and Ananias, and then an event happens, and then he processes it in community. So let's look at what happens. So it says that in verse 1, it says that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. There's that word, disciples, learners, students, apprentices. Paul is breathing threats against them. He is so full of self-righteous religiosity. He's on a mission to snuff out anyone who calls on the name of Christ. He's trying to kill the church before it gets any kind of momentum. 
That's his mission. And he's on the way up to Damascus, which is the headquarters of Syria. So if you don't know geography, you probably do know where the Sea of Galilee is. There's the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee, and then Syria is up further to the north. Damascus was up there. So the Apostle Paul left Jerusalem and he went very far up to the north because he had heard that there was a church, a Christian church that was gaining strength in Damascus. And he went there with letters from the religious leaders to go and persecute them, to arrest them, bind them, it says, and then presumably take them back to Jerusalem as prisoners. And I don't know what they were going to do with them, but he was trying to snuff out Christianity. He's on the way and he meets Jesus, something he was not prepared for. He thought Jesus was just a man who died on a cross and was in a tomb and lies about him being raised were being spread. Well, we're in this season of Easter. We've already said, Alleluia, Christ is risen. He was alive and Paul had to learn that. So he's on the way and Jesus himself comes to the apostle, the would-be apostle. And a flash of light, blinding light, and then a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now I want you to recognize something. He doesn't even know who this is that's speaking. In fact, he says, who, who, who are you, Lord? And then he says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Jesus so identifies with his people that to persecute a Christian is to persecute Christ. To serve a Christian is to serve Christ. And if you remember back to baptisms on uh, anytime we've done a baptism, one of the questions asked of the person being baptized or the people sponsoring the child is, will you seek and serve Christ in other persons. So I began with a call to worship this morning talking about where two or three are gathered, I'm in their midst. Christ is in the midst of his people. And if you want to seek more of Christ in your life, seek out the community of faith. Seek out other believers. Process, talk, discuss, ask. Be, be learners together in community. That's what ch changes you. That's what will transform you. But coming and hearing a sermon and getting communion every week, those are really good and important things. But those are meant to inspire, to feed us and encourage us. But it's through that wrestling together, it's through that processing that we're transformed. Because Christ is in his people. So seek Christ in other people. Be part of that. Now look what happens here. As the apostle is blinded, he then is given instruction, go into the city and wait. You'll get further instruction there. So he goes into the city. He's blind now. He's led by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he neither eats nor drinks anything. He is so dumbfounded. His entire paradigm has been broken. This Jesus that he was trying to snuff out is actually the risen Lord. And he's been persecuting him. He's been on the wrong team and didn't know it. He's been doing great harm. And he sits there three days in a forced timeout. God put him in timeout. Three days, he had to sit there and think about this. Blind, in darkness, and, he, and all he did is he just prayed the whole time. And his prayer was just one big question mark, just like the alpha sign. What? How? How does, what, does, what does this mean? Meanwhile, there is a church in Damascus, a rather big one. And one of the, it's called, somebody called a disciple. This is in verse uh, 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, a disciple, somebody learning Christ. But he's, he knows the Lord, but he's growing as a, as, a, as a follower of Jesus. And he's a prayerful man. And he hears the Lord speak to him. And I love his response. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Probably picking up Eli and Samuel from the Old Testament when Samuel the prophet was first called and Eli had to say the, th the third time, if you hear someone calling your name, 
Say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Ananias, here I am, Lord. Prayerful man, listening to God, willing to press in further. Then God gives him some instructions. Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. God knows he's in timeout praying. Three days he's been praying. And he's seen in a vision. We get a little bit more. He's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, Saul was so nasty and his campaign of evil was so well known that Ananias right away knows who he's talking about. And he says, he, he speaks up, and, you know, this is prayer, dialogical, so two directions. God spoke to him, he responds. And he says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, in Damascus, here, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, go, he's my chosen servant, servant of mine. He's going to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. And with that, Ananias is comforted. Okay, I'm going to do this. God has called him. And he's now going to work for the Lord. And so he goes to, to Judas's house on Straight Street, asks for Saul, and comes in. And then one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel is presented in two simple words. Brother Saul. Brother. Not hated enemy, not persecutor of the church, not awful Jewish person who hates Christians. Brother. And, and I have to imagine, I've never been blind, but I have to imagine three days of blindness is um, disorienting. Or those that are blind, um, they don't make eye contact with you when you walk into a room. It's hard to make the connection. But I imagine it's a real gift to be touched. So Saul, Saul is there blind praying, and Ananias comes in and lays his hands on him, maybe put his hands on both of his shoulders and said, Brother Saul. How comforting was that? Now think for a minute about somebody that you know that is nasty. Don't say their name. Think for, some, think for a minute about somebody who does bad things, who's evil, who's hard to be around. They're just an unpleasant person. They're nasty. You have to have the Spirit of God to be able to see that person through God's eyes of what God could and would do in their life if the gospel got a hold of them. Don't look at people as they are now. Look at who they are becoming. So he says, Brother Saul, you are my brother in Christ. We belong to the same family. God is at work in your life. See, Ananias was doing what the baptismal vow says, seeking Christ and serving Christ in others. He watched God at work in this guy Saul's life. He doesn't even know Saul, just by infamous reputation, and he's serving Christ in Saul. He recognizes that he's become part of the fellowship of believers, and now he's his brother. I'm going to embrace you as my brother, brother Saul. That shows us grace, how good the Lord is that while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we cleaned up our act and became nice people. He died for us while we were his enemies. And so he expects Christians to be kind to people, to win them over, to serve Christ in them, to recognize what God might be doing in their life and work with that, which is exactly what happens here. He lays hands on him, and then something, this is kind of weird, but something like scales fall off his eyes. I don't know what that is. I don't... Uh, I'd love to know, actually, just curious, but something falls off his eyes, and then he can see again, and it says that he's baptized. Now, I don't know if it was like the whole community gathered over there at Judas's house. I don't know if that was the next day or that evening or what. 
He's baptized into membership in Christ. He belongs. And then he takes some food and regains his strength. And he's, and it, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So look at the specific text. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He is born again. He is a new creation in Christ. The old Saul is gone. And we know from his epistles that he wrote that he's going to spend the rest of his life humbly trying to pay back the damage that he did, knowing he can't possibly ever repay it. He is a totally different person. In fact, he's now as zealous for the gospel as he was against it. That is repentance, a 180-degree turn, and he does suffer much, and he recounts it in some of his epistles. So we didn't read the, the next verse, but in verse 19, it says, and for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately, he's in the community. He's processing the experience. He had a spiritual experience, and God provided Ananias and the church to help him process that. I'm sure he had lots to talk about. I'm sure he got lots of prayer in that time. And if you want to know more from Paul's perspective of what happened, um, it's so significant that it's actually recounted two other times in Acts. And then in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says, from here, he went out to the Arabian desert to do a prayer retreat. Then he came back to Damascus. And then from there, he began to proclaim all over the place. He went right into the synagogues and started to tell people about the gospel. He started to debate with the Jews about how Jesus is the Christ. And he grew and grew and grew as the Lord taught him. But see, he had an event and then he had a community to process it with. And I want to encourage you to do the same. How often do you experience something spiritual in your life and don't process it with anyone? Good spiritual or bad spiritual. You felt God, and then for three months, it seems like he's disappeared, and you're totally dry. Is that just because it's you? Are you the only one that experiences that? No. That's a normal thing in the Christian life. It's called the dark night of the soul. One of the, St. John of the Cross, one of the uh, authors of the past talked about it. It's a common Christian experience. It's helpful to come alongside some other people and say, hey, help me process this. My prayer life is dry. God never seems to speak to me anymore. I don't feel him when I go to church. What's happening? What do you do? Does that happen to you? Yeah. If you talk to somebody who's walked with the Lord longer, it does. Ananias had walked with the Lord longer than Paul. He was probably able to say, here, let me tell you what it's like to follow Jesus. Here's, let me tell you what it's like to have the Holy Spirit in my life working on me. I'm a disciple growing too, but I've walked a little further than you, Saul. Come along with us. And he grows through this. He's transformed through it. Now, all of our church programs that we do, Soul in the City, Alpha Rooted Life Groups, the prayer ministry training, they have built within to them intentional practicums so that you don't just talk about Christianity, you actually practice it. It's a true apprenticeship. So you don't just talk about the need to serve Christ among the poor. You actually go out and serve the poor. You don't talk about prayer. You have a prayer retreat. You don't just talk about being set free. You actually have a, an event where you pray for spiritual breakthrough in community, and you experience it. The prayer ministry teaches prayer and then says, okay, let's get into groups and practice what we've just heard. That's exactly how Jesus made disciples. He chose 12 men, and they walked with him for three years. And so when kingdom of God things happened, and Jesus generated a lot of those, he would say, let me tell you about the kingdom of God, and then let me show you what it looks like. So they would say to him, Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray. Speaking of John the Baptist, they were praying people, these disciples. They were good Jew Jewish men. They, they did synagogue. They prayed. But Jesus prayed differently. And 
this whole apprenticeship, this discipleship, this being a learner required them to come alongside him and for him to model how, he's, how he prays. And I'm longing for our church to do such things. He didn't just talk about the kingdom, he showed it. Christ is learned through Christians. I want our church to seek Christ in other persons. Now, sometimes that means you're seeking Christ to get something, like you're asking for help in your spiritual life. Other times, it's because God is moving you to go and minister to somebody like Ananias did to Saul. So this morning, you're not going to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because if you raise your hand, if I said, raise your hand if you're mature in Christ, well, humility would, would prevent that, right? Yes, I am. Well, no one, no one wants to admit they're mature in their faith. But some of you have walked a lot further. You know the common experiences of, of being a Christian in this world. And I long for you to impart some of that wisdom to other people that are seeking it. I want you to be like Ananias. I want you to pray and listen for names. God might put somebody on your heart. It may not be as specific as go to Straight Street to Judas's house and the man's name is Saul. But as you're praying, God might give you a picture of a coworker of yours and maybe one that's kind of unsavory that you would never think to talk to otherwise because Christ in that person is already, he's already at work there. And now he's saying, I want you to be the one in this next season to, to walk with them. Pray. And then go in faith and go with grace. Go expecting this person to be different than they currently are. Try to see the redeemed version of the person, not the current broken person, and see what God's going to do with that. And in so doing, you're going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit. We constantly are asking the Holy Spirit to come, but we need his help to do this well. And so Ananias prays, and the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul, and Saul has the Spirit of God in him, and Ananias has the Spirit of God in him. Now this morning, if you're here and you might call yourself a skeptic, or maybe you're not sure. You don't necessarily want to take the label Christian on. You're like, great, thanks for the sermon, Mike. It tells me nothing. It only tells Christians how to serve Christ and other people. Well, I want to encourage you with something. Don't just have a spiritual experience in your life and keep it quiet. You know that coincidence that keeps happening? You keep hearing a scripture verse, or somebody keeps saying a certain thing to you, or every time you turn around, there's that person that goes to church, and you're like, ah, stop saying coincidences. Press in and ask a Christian about it. I want, I want to encourage you to seek out the process. Process what's happening. If there's things about Christianity that you don't understand or don't like, go ask a Christian about it. It'll be interesting to see what they say. Find a mature Christian or somebody that you think is mature and say, does this make sense? I don't, I don't know what's going on in my life, but I keep having this experience. Help me understand it. Have you ever had an experience like this? Process the religious events in your life, and you'll, you'll see God at work because he's already at work. Now, as a church, I'm hoping that we will grow as disciples, and that means both growing personally and helping others grow, and this is done in community. As I started with, Christ says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. Let's seek Christ and serve Christ in other people as we disciple generations and extend grace. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask you to come now. I pray that you would begin to give an image to each one of us of someone in our life, either that needs to hear an encouraging word or to have a conversation about the faith, or somebody that we could go to with some questions. Lord, even as Christians who've walked with you for a long time, sometimes it gets really hard and we need the community. 
Show us where to go. Give us the courage to do it. Again, Jesus, I praise you for building your church. And I also thank you for the call to make disciples. It's hard, but you give us everything that we need to do it. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And I pray this in your holy name. Amen.